Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. This one's on gun violence, but we've got uh, a whole series of these that we're going to start doing this year. And uh, boy, it is... Uh, it's a heavy, heavy time right now. I mean, right now in Philadelphia, as you may have seen in the news, we had um, a mass shooting today. Um, folks are surviving right now. There's like seven people in the hospital, but um, they were shot at a train station just a couple miles from where we live, or a bus station. And uh, this is on the you know, uh, same time that Philadelphia last year had f 500 uh, homicides, so more than one a day. Uh, it's something that we're seeing, you know, all over our country, um, uh, even in the middle of the pandemic. The, the gun violence is just uh, uh, hitting us every day. And so thank you for being a part of this conversation. It's also like three days after the anniversary of the Parkland shooting um, a few years ago in Florida at the um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School. And, you know, when it comes to our country, this is where we find ourselves. We, we are living in a country where we have about 100 gun deaths every single day. We've got five times more gun dealers than McDonald's restaurants. We've got about 5% of the global population, but we have uh, almost half of the world's guns. Half the world's guns. So we, I mean, we're producing almost one gun every three seconds, 1,000 guns an hour, 26,000 guns a day, 9.5 million guns a year. We've got a problem, right? We've just been obsessed with guns. And we've got, we lead the world in the industrialized countries in gun violence, gun deaths. Um, in my lifetime, we've had more people die domestically from gun violence than in all of the wars in U.S. history combined. Um, gun deaths are the number one cause of death of African-American kids. And they're the second cause of death for American kids in general. And, and so as we think about this, I grew up thinking about being pro-life, but I, I thought about abortion and not guns. So we're gonna talk about all that tonight. But we also believe in art and poetry and imagination. So before we dive into this, uh, we're gonna hear from our brother Propaganda. He's gonna bring us a word. So uh, thank you, you you're, you're in for a treat tonight. So thanks for being with us, Prop. 
What's up? What's up? What's up, everybody? Yeah, my name is Propaganda. I'm from South Central Los Angeles, which means I'm very familiar with gun violence. I guess the, I guess the inspiration of this poem, it's kind of hard to land on one particular piece, especially for something as important as this topic. What I believe about Red Letter Christians and about what we're going to try to do here is, is you're just we're just imagining a different future. I think oftentimes most of us, you know, we exist in a space where we kind of believe that like it what could be is impossible, you know, but forgetting that what is now somebody just made up, you know, so that somebody just made that up. So let's make up something better, you know? Um, and then oftentimes when you're the one suggesting like, yo, you know, it, I don't know if anybody know, but it really don't have to be like this, that uh, you're the one that um, seems like you done lost your mind, you know? So I just want to um, make you feel a little normal. You can say what's up to my daughter back there. She's uh, she's part of the reason why I fight so hard. Uh, here we go. So when you're a shark being judged on how well you climb a tree, you might as well be a piece of kelp yelping at a blue whale helpless, a toothless tiger with ruthless ire. And you might find yourself talking yourself out of your own desires when you try to tell them you different, that you made from magnificent, but those with lungs, they don't get the gill significance. But be a still standing stanza, the circumference of their comfort. And if they want to stay that, then don't invite you to their conference. Be a speaker to the people defeating their conquistadors that you telegraph no move like what these blinkers for. See me. I got a great grandmammy who manched and manch you peach you. And you should consider that an honor if she even stooped to speak to you, the least of you. You would be surprised what two feet can do. One mission execute like I don't know what we meeting for. You know, a couple L's will teach you more than any war or liquor store. And you don't need a penny more to mature. See, I say this to disrupt othering. Look across the table in their eyes and see your own suffering people. And they just people. And if this is all we got and all we got is this. And this is just it, then let's make the best of it. I suggest a redo when all we see is do is see through because war, it's beneath you. And I don't think any of that will sink in until you learn to scream, I need you. And if this is all we got, then all we got is this. And this is just it, then let's make the best of it. I suggest a redo. All we do is see through. And when God finally speaks, I bet it'll be through. Ooh, people. Ooh. Thank you. So Ooh. Thank you, man. Ooh. Thank you, bro. So tonight uh, for our conversation, we've got uh, three people who are heroes of mine, folks that are pioneering the way when it comes to imagining a world with uh, less gun violence, a world where life flourishes and uh, every person's protected. And uh, Reverend Sharon Risher, who is going, I'm, I'm not going to tell you a lot about these folks because we're going to all talk to each other, but they, they've got stories, they've got uh, wisdom. And Reverend Sharon and I are, um, and Rob too, are a part of the Everytown Faith Council. And uh, she lost her mom in the Emanuel AME shooting and two cousins and her, fam her family friends. So she's going to talk about that, but she's also a powerhouse uh, preacher <laughs> and, and uh, uh and then Rob is, is uh, going to tell us more about his story, but he was really involved in the pro-life movement and began to see uh, that more than one issue matters. And he loves Jesus and cares about life. Uh, and is also, there's a great film called Armor of Light that tells a lot about 
um, Rob's story and also our, our sister, uh, Lucia McBath. And um, so thanks, Rob, for being here, brother. And then Ben oh, McBride's a new friend. Uh, we, we, we've been looking forward to teaming up and I've got uh, uh, so much respect for what you've been doing, Ben. He's out in San Francisco, actually in Oakland now, but native to San Francisco, uh, doing some really, really concrete work in the community. So we don't want to just talk. We're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about the issue, but we also need some like real like things we can do on the ground. And Ben's been doing that in his own community, reducing gun uh, homicides by like 50% over five years, doing a lot of training around police violence. Um, he's also in the award-winning film, The Force. Um, it sh shows more about his work, but it's great to be with you, brother. Thank you for being here. So I'll, I'll get us going. I, I think that, um, you know, as I think about the, the gun violence and it, 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 it has to become personal, right? And, and the statistics are like that half of people in America know someone who's been impacted by gun violence, either by suicide or by being shot. Um, but it seems like there's, there's a part of this that until it becomes personal, um, a lot of people don't feel the fire in their bones to do something, right? And I, I know for me, like, what happened in our community in North Philadelphia is it became personal. You know, I, I remember one mother um, as she lost her 19 year old right, right in front of our house and she's weeping. And, um, and she said, I'll never forget what she said. She said, God knows what it feels like to lose your boy. Mm. And, um, and I think that we know that there is a, a God who is near to the suffering. Um, but we're not always as near as we should be to the suffering. And so um, I want to start with you, Sharon. I mean, you, you entered the, this conversation not by choice. It sort of chose you. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. But you're also working with survivors and with heroes that have used their wounds to try to, you know, build a better world. So talk a little bit about... Um, your story and, and why this is personal, you know, to all of us. Well, Shane, as you said earlier, you know, my life changed on a hot summer night, June 17th, 2015. When this young radicalized supremacist had a plan in his brains and that he would go to the historical Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston and shoot as many people as he could. You know, it's crazy that it was only nine people because less than an hour earlier, the church was full of hundreds of people because they were having a uh, quarterly conference, which the AME has, where the church get together and talk about uh, the business of the church for the next quarter. After that tragedy, and with my mother being killed and my cousins and my friend, I felt like I had to be able to speak out because hate crimes had been on the rise. And I don't know if I buried my head in the sand when it came to white supremacy and all of this, but I just didn't even understand that these things were happening underground. And after my beloved mother was killed, I knew that I had to be a part of something that was going to be bigger than me. 
You talk about Parkland. I have met survivors in just about every mass shooting that has occurred since 2015. I don't think people really realize the kind of ripple effects that have on a person, not just grief and pain, but everyday living. Survivors have gotten together to put our voices together, to put a face to this gun violence, to let people know that it's just not something that you see on TV. These are real people with real pain. Lucia McBath was the one that brought me into the movement. And as a matter of fact, her son Jordan would have been 26 years old yesterday if he hadn't been killed. And, and as a Jesus follower, I mean, there was no way that I can continue to not be a part of finding solutions to help my brothers and sisters, because that's what God command us to do, to love one another to the point of sacrifice. So when you get into these kind of movements, it's a sacrifice to know that what you're advocating for is just not about you, but it's about our brothers and sisters that find themselves caught up in situations that most times had nothing to do with them. It's, it, it's uh, the loneliest club nobody wants to be a part of, really. And when we have our emails saying, welcome this person, my heart aches, because then that means that that person is going to go through something that will be with them for the rest of their lives. So as long as I've got breath in my body, I'm going to advocate for gun violence prevention because when you buy a gun, when you get a gun, you have to know that you're going to have to be able to kill another human being because why? Would you have a gun otherwise? Can you live with that? When you buy a gun, that's, that's something you have to ask yourself. Mm. So I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing, not for me, but for others. I know that's right. Rob, I, I want to, you know, as we as we listen to Sharon, as I've listened to her talk to, you know, on on this and the death penalty and so many other things, there's there's a whole side of this that is there's a spiritual dynamic, you know, that sometimes when people say to us that that gun violence is not a gun problem, it's a heart problem, and and we say it's both, you know, like uh, God heals hearts and people change laws. But you've right. got this. You've got this thing that you gave me, Rob, and I'm going to show it to everybody. Um, this the, Rob here gave me this Bible case. He said this is one of the top selling Bible cases in the entire country in the world. And uh, he said, "Open it up." And I opened it up, and it's a, a concealed carry case, right, disguised as a Bible cover. And there's something about this that I think is haunting. Right. But is also shows 
that, that when we talk about idolatry, right, and replacing, you know, the, <laughs> the gun, th- this, this goes to the heart of our faith, too. Like, white Christians are the biggest gun-owning demographic in America. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Rob, you can start, and then we're going to go to you in a second, but feel free to jump in on this, too, man. Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Shane, for inviting me, and what a lineup. I mean, uh, I can't compete with what Sharon and Brother Ben are doing, so let Don't me Don't start this, it. Don't start it, Let Bob. me make this quick. <laughs> uh, and, and start by saying, yes, I represent uh, the community that, as far as in the religious world, is the greatest perpetrator when it comes to arming up with lethal firepower. White evangelical Christians in America, which I represent, I am an ordained, in case you couldn't tell, white evangelical (laughs) minister, uh, and uh, have been for 40 years. By the way, I usually remind people, though, my skin's a little more like poached salmon. It's not quite white. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a weird color, but anyway. You're a brother go, anyway, <laughs> Rob. You're a brother, Rob, regardless of your skin color. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, this is, this is the fact. Uh, mm-hmm. I am a part of that community. I chaired the largest Uh, oldest continuous association of white evangelical clergy in this country for a number of years. And many of those pastors that I worked with, that I uh, superintended, were armed and are armed in the pulpit. I had one pastor tell me, I never go to the pulpit unarmed. And if somebody stands up in my church and makes a noise, I don't understand. I'm going to take him out right from that sacred desk. Now, never mind, you know, uh, Shane, you mentioned the film I was part of, Abigail Disney's Emmy Award-winning documentary, The Armor of Light, which tells both my story, but uh, Lucy McBath's, uh, a friend to so many of us. Great film. But in the making of that film, I wanted to know my subject. So unlike you guys raised in the South, I didn't touch any guns in New York State. (laughs) So I had to go out and learn. I went out on the range. I was trained by a U.S. Marine Corps uh, firearms instructor. And he said, first of all, uh, you don't take a gun to yourself unless you're ready to kill Sister Sharon, you just Mm. made that point. You don't take a weapon to yourself unless you are ready to use it to kill in an instant without a second thought, because any firearms instructor will tell you, if you're not ready to kill with the instrument, you're more a part of the problem than you are the solution, because it's going to be taken from you in a violent uh, struggle. It's going to be used to kill you and go on to kill others. So you better be ready to kill every time you strap it on your body. You go to church ready to kill. You go to the grocery store ready to kill. You step out of your home ready to kill. That's your view of life. You are ready to kill anything that presents itself that you perceive to be a threat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This implicates all kinds 
of theology questions, discipleship questions, doctrinal questions, and certainly questions of spirituality, relationship. Now I'm going to talk to my fellow white, Bible-believing, born-again, Holy Ghost-filled brothers and sisters. When Jesus was asked of all of all the material in the scriptures, in the Bible, in the word of God, the whole law of God, which was used as the totality of scripture, what, what is the most important? And Jesus said, it is two things, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the greatest commandment, the greatest thing God ever said. Love him, and the second is like it. And most of us preachers know that Bible interpreters, many scholars will render that the same is, uh, the second is equal to it. It's the same as it. You love God, you love the people made in God's image. You love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we'll get, I'm sure we'll talk about suicide later, but unless you're ready to kill yourself, then you're not ready to kill your neighbor because you treat your neighbor the same way you would treat yourself. But the Bible goes even further than that. It commands us to love our enemies mm -hmm. and to do good to those who mean us harm, who intend to persecute us, to injure us. Do good to them, the Bible says. So if I claim to be a Bible-believing Christian, I have to obey those commandments of God, or I'm just a bad Christian. And if I strap a weapon to myself and go to church ready to kill, if I step out of my home, go to the grocery store, pick up my kids at school ready to kill anyone and anything, friend or foe, I'm out of sync with the mm. command of God. And I like mm -hmm. to say... To be a Christian means to be a little Christ, a little, uh, uh, to be a mini Christ. And to be, if you look at the model, mission, ministry, and message of Jesus, putting on a lethal weapon and preparing to kill is not consistent with Christian discipleship. Mm -hmm. And that's my say for the moment. It's mm, a good word, man. I think, yeah. I, think it, I first heard Mike, I think this was your line that I stole, Mike, and I attribute it, I, I give you credit some of the time, but, uh, you know, that the gun and the cross give us two really different versions of power. And mm -hmm. one, of them, one, one of them says, I'm willing to die, and the other says, I'm willing to kill. And it becomes really hard to try to reconcile those, right? So, Ben, you know, I think like as we think about the some of the practical stuff, you've been, you know, on the ground, like really seeing some, it, it can feel so overwhelming, like you start to go, what can we really change? And I'm really, I'm hopeful because I think that there's more and more people that are convinced that it doesn't have to be this way, right? Like we, we don't have to uh, accept a country where so many lives are lost uh, every single day. And the fact is that two thirds of Americans live without guns. There's a third of Americans that have guns. And there's a few people that have a whole lot of guns, like uh, mm -hmm. 3% of our population own over 130 million guns. So 
3% almost uh, on half of the guns. And so it's kind of like there's this extreme version that we've got to deal with, but it affects every element of our society. When our whole society is saturated with guns, guns are the biggest reason that police officers are killed. They're the biggest reason that soldiers are killed or by suicide from their own gun. Um, the police are killing people because they're also like really, you know, scared for their lives. And so, um, Tell us some of the handholds of what you've seen work. Cause I mean, among other things, you're yeah. really practical on this, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think the other thing that's important to note is that, that, uh, that the majority of the people in that small percentage of the folks that own all the guns are white, you know? So th- this is, this is actually not an affirmative action uh, situation. You know, this is, mm-hmm. this is, uh, this is, this is, there's some exclusivity here, right? In the, in the sense that uh, the, the majority of the people that are carrying the weapons are right. And, and I'm still struck, and, and I'm, I'm going to give you this little practical thing real quick, but I've just got to jump back real quick, you know, because I'm so struck by what Rob said, my our, our dear brother, around the notion of a pastor saying that he's packing a pistol in the pulpit. And that if anybody moves in the congregation that he doesn't know, he's going to unpack his pistol and discharge his bullets on the congregation. Um, I think it's a very curious notion that folks who seek to follow the Prince of Peace worship the Lord of War. Mm. I, I think it's something that folks mm. have, to, have to sit with, that why is it that you choose to follow someone who, who embodied peace, and yet uh, the way in which you want to show up is, is more informed by the empire who put him to death. I mean, if Jesus was alive now, he'd be much more like Pookie from East Oakland, or he'd be much more like uh, Tom Tom somewhere, somewhere out there in the rural uh, back part of a town. That, that's what Jesus would be. If Jesus were living right now, he would be much more likely because of the current conditions to be in a position where he would shoot his loved one or where he would harm himself by suicide because of the conditions that we've created and the way in which we have glorified the gun to take away people's lives over holding up a culture that is about saving people's lives. I, I think it is very curious. I, I remember in a conversation I had when we were in Ferguson one time over dinner, we were sitting across the table from Prophet Cornel West. That's what I like to call my dear brother because the, the, the brother the prophet um, he just prophetic for being able to have all that hair at this stage of his life. But, but you know, uh, Dr. West said, listen, he said, white evangelicals have stood at the cross of Jesus, caught his blood in a cup, turned it into Kool-Aid for mass production. Wow. Mm, wow. wow. <laughs> and, I, you know, it was a deep moment for him to just say that over a chocolate chip cookie, right? Just this notion that, <laughs> that there's been a version of Christianity that has taken the very powerful message of Jesus, this model of what it means to live inside an empire without becoming imperial, what it means to actually give one's life towards peace when you actually have the power to choose war, that that is what it means to take up one's cross, that that's what it means to follow this kind of way, that it's really about what does it mean for us to close our proximity to the danger, not to become the danger or to take on the weapons of war, but actually to get close to danger and actually begin to model uh, peace and to become an instrument of peace. I think that's what we've been trying to do. Um, We have been you know, figured it all out. But just to get practical, as you were talking about, Shane, I think it's important for us to recognize when people say it's not about the gun, it's about uh, hearts and minds. It's, it's just about people's issues. One of our peacemaking buddies from 
Israel Palestine, Israeli brother that used to be in the IDF. He said he came over here uh, to study uh, Christianity because he wanted to figure out why Christians were so violent. But in any case, one of the things he said is that the gun is like people walking around with their own personal nuclear bomb. That's what it is. That at any moment of, of, uh, indecision or a moment of anger or a moment of frustration, you can literally explode someone else's world and the carnage you create, the families that are hurt in and around this. And when I moved into the kill zone of East Oakland uh, 12, 13 years ago, that is what we saw. We saw the carnage of what happens when a country that says it loves Jesus and says it's founded on Judeo-Christian principles. I don't know how it says that when it was founded by a bunch of slave-owning, you know, genocide, warring, crazy folks, but that's another conversation for another time. But a country that says it is founded on, on Judeo-Christian values that 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 creates the kind of conditions uh, that many communities are living in where they're facing violence on a daily basis. And what we learned and what we found is that the gun is one of the greatest threats to us being able to create a culture of peace in many of our communities. Our loved ones in our neighborhoods don't pick up guns because they want to. They pick up guns because the system has failed them and the adults have not made them safe and the guns are out available. And the only way for them to get some kind of safety is to pick up a gun because we've created a society where they are available to land all around. What we found was that we were able to change the culture of violence in Oakland by doing two major things. One, by creating a kind of communication strategy where we got close to those who are most at the highest risk to commit an act of violence in the same way that we love to talk about how Jesus came from heaven and came and drew close to our pain because of love. And from that, we found redemption. We had to realize that we had to get close to our sisters, brothers, and relatives that were involved in gun violence out of love, not out of judgment, but out of love, and that we had to get close to them so that we could be a part of their redemption and reconciliation. But the other thing that we had to do is we had to change gun policy. We had to make sure that we were passing the kinds of policies that were making those guns less available in our community so that we can keep our loved ones safe. And so I think one of the things that we just want to hold up is is that, um, you know, the culture of violence that we have uh, in our country is one that is really, um, I think, telling of the revival that still needs to happen. Uh, I, I think that uh, God has us all at a moment where we all need to go to the altar call. Uh, we all need to respond and ask ourselves, uh, Lord, what must we do to be mm-hmm. saved as America? What, how must we repent that we can be saved from this culture of violence? How must we repent from the ways in which we other one another and feel that violence is the only way to solve problems? Lord, mm-hmm. give us the kinds of eyes that are willing to have an imagination that is bigger than violence as our only way to security, but one that actually sees peace and sacrifice as a way to garner true peace and and really the kingdom of God. And so I think for us, Shane, it's really been about getting in the streets, getting in relationship with folks. It's about changing public policy. And it starts one step, one law, one conversation at a time. But it doesn't start as long as we're in the four walls of our church or the four walls of our house watching church on Zoom. It starts when we get into spaces with other people. Come on. Mm-hmm. That's what, that's mm-hmm. what I'm saying. So I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, the, the issue from all different directions. We need to do better theology. We need to do better community building where this mm-hmm. is not for the, you know, I, I think it's Alexia Salvatierra who we were with earlier today. And she said, uh, privilege is just being able to choose which issues you care about and which issues mm-hmm. you don't. 
privilege is being able to opt out of something because you think it doesn't affect you. And so that proximity is important. But let's keep talking about some of the concrete things that we can imagine um, reducing the amount of gun deaths, right? Because I, I mean, Mike and I, in our, uh, when we were researching this, we, we, have a, we, we started thinking about cars, you know, and you've got like, a lot of things that we've done to keep people safe from cars and cars aren't even designed to kill. Right. But they can. And so we've got, uh, you know, seat belts, airbags, we've, we've got speed limits. You, you got to pass a test to get a license. If you misuse it, you can get it taken away. Right. And as you know, technology changes, we've got new laws like that. You can't text and drive. That's a good one. Right. Like we, we, so we, we've evolved as we think, how can we protect people from cars and yet guns are one of the most unevolved industries in our country, right? We, we think about the Second Amendment and talk about it like it was written yesterday. And yet it was written when guns shot one round a minute. And now they shoot 100 rounds in a minute, you know. And I, I think there's all kinds of things we can do with the Second Amendment. But let's, let's talk a little bit about what are some of the concrete changes that we might see as, as possible. Anybody want to jump in on that? Cause I think we're in a season mm. where we might see some changes, right? You want to start sharing? Well, I was going to say tomorrow, I'm going to uh, speak before the Oregon state legislature about bill 2543, the Charleston loophole. This is one of the things that I've been involved in and I will continue. And that's gun law law reform. We have, like you just said, we have to have different kind of laws. It's so easy now. I mean, there are states now that you don't have to have a concealed carry permit. You just carry, you know, the stand your ground law that was used for, for Lucy's son's case where he felt like he was in fear of his life. And because of the laws in Florida, he was able to try to, to use the stand your ground law. So with the Charleston loophole, this is giving an opportunity for the federal government and all the agencies that do the background check more than three days. Dylan Roof would have not been able to buy get his gun, but because the law says after three days of applying to buy a law, if the gun seller has not received that report within the three days, then he has the legal right to go ahead and sell a gun. Well, Dylan Roof's background check didn't come back within that three days. And if it did, they would have found out that he had been convicted on uh, having substance. So he wouldn't have been able to buy the gun. And so we pray if he had not been able to get that gun, then maybe my mama would be alive today. So we have to continue to put pressure on the new administration. Biden has said that he is going to make gun violence a priority of his administration. We have to get states to look at the laws and try to, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? To find these loopholes, close these loopholes, and just prayerfully 
we know that in changing laws, lives can be changed. So that's part of the solution, too, that we have to legislate different gun laws. And Mm -hmm. that's part of what I do, too. You know, I I wear all kinds of little hats, but that's something that I'm very uh, passionate about. And I will continue to speak on judicial hearings and legislation to be able to get that Charleston loophole passed. Thanks. That's a great, that's a great place to start. Maybe Ben or Rob, you guys want to jump in on that? Like, and Mike, you too, feel free to jump in on like some, some real handholds, you know, things like that we can, yeah. we can do. Let me give you two practical things. Just as uh, Reverend Sharon was saying, there's two things that we need to do. Keep the guns from getting on the street and help get the guns off the street. Those are the two <laughs> pieces of, of activity that we Why? need to do. So, What Reverend Sharon was talking about is the policies are how we keep the guns from getting on the street. So we all should know and find out and do our research on what are the gun laws that are active in your state, what are the gun laws that are active in your county, and what are the gun laws that are active in your city. You should know that. You can do that. you got Google. you at home. You can go outside. There's the coronavirus outside. Google and find out what the laws are and then figure out how to marshal your friends, organize your friends to call your elected officials and ask for stronger gun laws to keep guns from getting on the street. That's the one piece. The practical side for how we get guns off the street. Here's the reality. I live in California. We have some of the strongest gun laws in the country, and yet we still got guns on the street because we have folks who are buying guns from gun shows and all these places without background checks, without registrations. And my loved ones, Pookie and Ray Ray, coming to your house to break in and steal your gun because they can't buy one in California. And that's how it lines count in the flat flatlands. So what we need you to do is to make sure that you're not buying illegal guns and that you are having this conversation with your friends so that those guns don't get in our community. The other practical thing I want to say is that we need to all become proponents of gun violence intervention strategies. That's how we get guns off the street. The CDC says it costs $1 million every time there is a gun-related homicide in a city. What What does that mean? That means that we are spending millions and millions of dollars for guns to kill people and for us to clean it up. I said to our mayor, you know, six, seven, eight years ago when we first started, I said, we implemented our gun violence intervention strategy. And in one year, we had 39 fewer gun-related homicides than the year before. I said, you, we just saved you $39 million. What would it look like you for, for you to tie $3.9 million of that back into the community for intervention strategy Ooh. so that we can get these young brothers and sisters jobs, housing, and opportunities so that they can make different choices? Because when you get people who have guns in their hands to make different choices, they give up the guns on their way. So how do we get the guns off the street? We all must become proponents of gun intervention strategies, not more police. Gun intervention strategies that get faith communities and services into the hands and the lives of the people that are most at risk. That's how we can stop gun violence. We have done it in cities all across this country. What we need is our white sisters and brothers to stand with your black and brown sisters and brothers and lift up your voices, not just for policy, but to demand that these cities do so. And the practical ways you can do that, show up at your public safety hearing meeting. Right now, you can do it on Zoom at home. So find out when your public safety hearing 
uh, meeting is and ask them how is your city investing in gun violence intervention strategies or if you don't live in an urban environment, how are they investing in strategies to ensure that they are providing prevention strategies for our young white brothers, particularly who are being impacted by suicide? So mm -hmm. good. And I'll, I'll just add an asterisk to that, uh, to Brother Ben's uh, commentary there, uh, because you need to call your county sheriff, especially if he generally or she is elected and ask, are you enforcing the laws? And if not, why are you not enforcing? There are plenty of sheriffs who have said that they're not, they're not cooperating with any anti-Second Amendment uh, laws, and they are negligent, irresponsible, and arguably uh, illegal in their actions because they are failing at least uh, to live up to their uh, legal responsibilities, and maybe worse than that. Uh, maybe they're defying orders uh, that are given to them by uh, legislation and by the executive branch, whether it's their mayor or their governor. So all of that is hold them accountable. But let me bring it back home for me to those white evangelical churches where so many gun owners are, and not just gun owners, but gun dealers, the people who are uh, organizing the gun shows where the Charleston loophole is exploited, uh, Sister Sharon, and where so many guns are stolen from vehicles because they're handled irresponsibly. They're not locked up in the house. And, uh, you know, you, you have a a work crew comes in or whatever, and guns are stolen. And then they go on the street and they start killing people. Yeah. And when you say, I don't buy the argument anymore, when people stand up in meetings or now on Zoom and they'll challenge me and they'll say, the gun doesn't do anything. The gun doesn't kill anybody. People kill each other. That's right. And they do it with a gun. You know, we are opportunistic yeah. murderers, the mm. human race. We do it out of passion. If the means is at hand, same with suicide. Look at the numbers of white males of a certain age, 40 to 70, who commit suicide, kill themselves because, why? If because the gun is at hand, it's the, it's the chosen instrument. And many who attempt it and fail will say, had the gun not been there, I, I wouldn't have tried it. Generally, white males don't swallow pills and only a few hang themselves. It's because the gun is there, it's quick and it's instant. And here, go, here we go back to a spiritual problem, Shane, you, you, you raised this a spiritual problem because so much of this is driven by fear, being afraid, even with suicide. I choose the gun because I'm afraid what will happen if I try it a different way. This is instant, quick, it's over. I'm afraid. People strap the gun on their bodies and go out shopping because they are afraid. Mm. They are filled with fear. They put a gun in their 
glove compartment because they are afraid. Jesus says to us, be not afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Fear is not to be a controlling power in our lives. And so I say to pastors, deal with this with your people. Preach on it. Teach on it. Counsel on it. Name it. Speak it. Help our people to formulate spiritual strength, spiritual well-being, peace of mind and heart, so that they don't wake up in the middle of the night hearing a bump and say, I got to get a gun or I got to get my gun. Yeah. That's being possessed by fear. This is as much a spiritual, psychological, and sociological problem as it is a legal problem. Thank you, brother. That's such a good word. I think of that scripture, you know, that perfect love casteth out fear. And so we can stand on that promise. And it feels like it with a lot of these issues that we're going to talk about, whether it's immigration or the death penalty or whatever, like there's this battle between love and fear. And you sort of what we're invited to think about is what would America look like if love rather than fear was what was compelling our policies, our lives. So, you know, I think of Dr. King when he said, a law can't make you love me, but it can make it harder for you to kill me, right? <laughs> so, so we need God to heal hearts, but we need to think about laws like we don't have grenades on the street. Why do we have war weapons on our streets? Uh, who, who needs to, a gun that can shoot 100 rounds a minute? Like, like there's no, none, as, as our, our hunter friends say, you don't, if you're a good hunter, you don't need a gun like that. You don't need 10 rounds to shoot a deer. But there's also technology, right, that we... We know that if, if we, we could uh, really do some data analysis and research and we could have the technology, we have the technology to have smart guns where they operate off of a fingerprint so that we, you know, if a gun's stolen or a kid finds it in the house, it makes it a lot harder to be used for uh, an accident or suicide because of fingerprint. But all of those things, we got to, all of us think about lives are at stake. We've sent people to the moon. Like we can figure out how to keep a hundred people every day from dying of gun violence. So we're going to come back to the to Ben and, and uh, Sharon and Robin in just a second. But I want to bring in Mike for just a minute. Mike and I um, have been friends for ten years. Uh, we wrote Beating Guns together. He is the founder and. Uh, what are you? I, I want to call you the drum major or whatever, man. You, you, you're like, because I, I know you don't like the hierarchy, you're, but you're technically no. the executive director you, you, of Raw Tools, which is war flipped backwards and uh, turning guns into garden tools and also doing all kinds of other uh, conflict mediation work. So give us a little update on Raw Tools, bro. I mean, I know because I talk to you all the time, but let tell everybody else what we're up to and how they can be involved. And even practically, if people want to get rid of a gun, how they can do it. Yeah, well, a real quick summary of what we do. We turn guns into garden tools and sell those tools and art and jewelry that we make from it to support restorative and transformative justice. Yeah, there's some tools there that Shane has 
initiatives, a lot of what Pastor Ben talked about. Um, our mission is to disarm hearts and for, forge peace. And we got three areas of focus where we do that. Swords to plowshares. All of this is rooted in Isaiah and Micah when they tell us to beat our swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, train for war no more, so that we can get to that vine and fig tree in fear of no other. And I don't know that that really means that we're not afraid of each other, but we don't let that fear dictate how we interact with each other. And that's, that's comes from a place of privilege to be able to say that. And so the reality that we're in now is that some communities don't have those resources and the under-resourced communities are also often the over-policed communities. So how can we flip that script and change that narrative? One of the ways we're doing that, we, we literally replace those tools of violence, the guns, with tools that cultivate life so we can grow food with the same metal that was meant to channel a bullet at somebody. But more than that, we get to invite people into the different processes of turning that gun into a garden tool, sending it to a community garden to grow food for a local uh, elementary school that's, that's, that's next door. Uh, all of these are things that I've, these examples that I mentioned are all things happening at various events that we've been a part of turning guns into garden tools. So when we exchange our tools, we also get to create new systems. And this is the part where we try and, uh, you know, propaganda was talking about earlier that we have to imagine the next thing. Walter Brueggemann has a great quote where we've, he says, we've been so assaulted by the Royal consciousness that we have lost the imagination to think an alternative thought. And we have to get out of that. We have to remove ourselves from that. And you're talking about white evangelicals and the, this armament that we're on. I'm in Colorado Springs, often seen as an evangelical capital of the world. And our county and the county west of us and the county north of us are three of the highest gun-owning counties per capita in the entire country. Colorado Springs, El Paso County is number 10 for, for populations over 500,000. Teller County to the west of us is number eight, no matter the population in the whole, in the whole country. And Douglas County north of us is right in there about 70. So we live in, in literally gun ownership capital per capita of the world. And it's where a ton of white evangelicals are. So it absolutely starts with us. One of the things that I'm excited about that's launching this year, right before COVID started, we got the, the federal approval to, and this a lot of this came out of our book tour, where we would arrange people to donate a gun to be transformed into a tool at each stop, right? Well, as the tour progressed, word kind of got out and people were bringing more. It was kind of like a loaves and fishes thing, right? Where at one of the, si one of the sites, we had over a dozen guns turned in and it was in a, a Southern state. So there's a, a rural pastor that had what she thought was a, what was a, a successful gun buyback and she got 12 guns turned in at her church. Mm. So we've taken that process, we cut it up as, as they're being donated, and we can run our own buybacks now. We don't have to involve law enforcement in that, which is a big deal because we can involve churches to change that narrative mm. and let them change the narrative of how this is being processed. So often, if you go to a buyback, law enforcement is helping facilitate it, or we partner with cities with their confiscated weapons. You might think that we have to partner with law enforcement because they're the ones that hold it, but they're doing it on the behalf of the city. And so one of the cities near us has basically chartered it for us to disable their guns. We'll make garden tools out of that to keep supporting our work and help kind of pay for that time. But we'll also make art that will be auctioned to sell to, and that will support restorative and transformative justice initiatives in our community that the, that the guns came from. Mm. So everything that, 
And all of that is because of the hard work that people like Pastor Ben are doing. They're setting the example. Cure violence, violence interrupters, all those folks are doing the hard work, getting in, loving your neighbor, and being in that space. And and we're really saying, let's fund it. Let's fund the, the good stuff with the stuff that tears us apart. And we can do that. It's literally composting. We are breaking down the evil and letting it grow something new. So good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, everybody can go. I mean, there, there's all kinds of places that uh, stuff's happening, but raw tools is one place that you can go to the website and also see, it's not easy to know how to get rid of a gun. Um, right. And so we, we have a place where you can tell us and we'll tell you the process. We, we do it all according to the, uh, you know, federal standards and all that stuff. So we'll, but I, I just picked one up over here, Mike, uh, from yeah. the fellow that drove out and he wanted to get rid of his gun and a lot of folks have inherited guns or whatever. So we're trying to, everyone we, we, uh, we get, we make something beautiful out of it and give the former gun, gun owner that, um, and, uh, awesome brother. So thanks for, for being here. And, um, let me go back to each of Rob and to Ben and Sharon, each of you, maybe in the last, you know, minute or so share, um, a little bit of how people can continue to support what you're doing. Um, and Sharon, you got your great book for such a time as this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Always on hand. Got, hold you, up. Always yeah. on. Oh hand. yeah. There <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah. Oh and, uh, yeah. So you go first and then we'll go to, to, uh, Rob and then to Ben about how, you know, any closing words or ways people can follow what you're doing. Okay, well, of course, the book is just one piece of uh, my journey into all of this. My uh, website is uh, Sharon Risher Speaks, and you can get a hold of me for events and speaking events. Um, I'm a part of Moms Demand Action in every town. And if you feel like uh, you want to come a part of that, you could text six. Four four three three, and someone will get back with you and give you information if you want to become a part of that group. And um, uh, of course, you, through Facebook, and I'm on Twitter and all of those social media outlets that I didn't even know I needed, but there I am. I'm um, I'm just out there doing the best I can to keep people knowledgeable about how gun violence is tearing us apart. I pray that my sisters and brothers that have pulpits, that they find a way to bring the message of Jesus Christ to a place where people, like Rob said before, that we can understand who we are as Christians. And if we're not followers of jesus then what are we doing so that's what i have to say thank you and no one will be disappointed for inviting sharon to say more (laughs) Uh, i'm here in washington dc and i head of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, named for the guy over my shoulder here with whom I keep company in my study. And we argue a lot. He was a young, very brave, brilliant church leader in 1920s, 30s Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. He would be one of the first courageous voices to speak out against Hitler's racist ideology and ultimately 
his mass murdering dictatorial regime. Bonhoeffer would be murdered himself by the Nazis at age 39 when he was hanged at Flossenburg concentration camp, but not before leaving us a wonderful body of literature on Christian ethics, moral philosophy, and theology. Let me just tell you this, he completed his second doctoral dissertation at age 21, his second. It took me to age 52 to do my first. <laughs> so uh, this guy was lived in the stratosphere with his mind and his heart, but he was a person of action. And we take on this subject of gun violence, particularly in the church and in the pulpit, as a theological crisis for American Christians. And we use Bonhoeffer's insights. We've developed a whole Bible study program that churches, small groups, individuals, uh, college uh, career groups can use. It's called Fully Protected, and it's available at our website, www.tdbi.org for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, TDBI. Org. You can get uh, take a look at the film we mentioned, The Armor of Light. Uh, there's a study guide that wraps around that, uh, woven into the Bible study, which you can use it with or without the film. But they work together, and you can find more resources on it at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, tdbi.org. And if you really want to attack the subject, read his tome, his magnum opus, Ethics. It's only 600 pages. You'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, 15 years ago, uh, my brother Mike, uh, was also pastor and leader in this work, got home from seminary and was telling me, man, we can, we can stop gun violence, man. I really believe that we can do it. And I told him, I said, Mike, I just want to save people. I just want to get people saved. And he looked at me and he said, Ben, you can't save nobody that's dead. Listen, five years later, we started what we thought was just going to be a couple year initiative that has turned into an over 10 year initiative called Live Free, a national initiative to end gun violence in our country and the scourge of mass incarceration and to transform the public safety system into one that we can all trust. We want to invite y'all go to livefreeusa.org, faith based movement, Jesus following, Pentecostal, tongue talking, chandelier swinging people that are trying to figure out what does it mean for us to try to love God and love each other, go and search through the website. There's a tab on there that you could find called Peacemakers, Be a Peacemaker. Sign up so that there could be more information. We were happy to figure out how to bring training tools to you, your congregation, and to just give you all of the digital stuff and things we've learned, successes and failures. We love y'all. We all in this together. So let's make sure that we all are part of being peacemakers. Glory. Well, on behalf of Red Letter Christians, I just want to thank all y'all for listening and thank everybody, all my friends for being here on the uh, on a part of this conversation. Uh, actually, I'm looking at us and we, we like to say at Red Letter Christians that we're a web of subversive friends. Stirring, yes. up, stirring up the holy mischief and sharing good on trouble. There. Good trouble. Rob's on there. Mike Martin and Raw Tools are a part of the uh, co-conspirators. Uh, Paul and Tricia are a part of our uh, musicians network. Ben, we got to get you on there if you're not already, my brother. But we are glad to team up. And uh, we're, we're, we try to do all this stuff for free, y'all. Um, Red Letter Christians, we, um, we, we, we want you to be able to 
access conversations like this, but if you can donate, go to our website and give what you can at redletterchristians.org. We're giving every one of the folks who have participated tonight just a small gift, but y'all make that possible. So give what you can, but know that we're going to keep having conversations like this. You know, it was Carl Bart that said, we've got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to hold the newspaper in the other so that our faith does not just become a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world that we live in. Our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die. I'm excited about the afterlife. Hallelujah. But it is also about bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And, and God's reign does not include people dying every single day of gun violence. That is not God's dream. So let's declare it, that we are going to seek God's reign on earth. And that means interrupting the epidemic of gun violence in our country. So thank you all for the conversation tonight. Next month, we're going to talk about the death penalty. We got my buddy Derek Jameson, who spent 20 years on death row for a, a crime that he had nothing to do with. He was wrongfully convicted. He's going to be with us. Suzanne Bossler, who was a survivor of a violent crime that her dad was killed in. So we're going to talk about the death penalty and what real justice looks like that heals the wounds of violence and doesn't just create more wounds. So we'll let you know when that's happening. I think it's uh, the second week of March on uh, the next Faith Forum. But Paul Damer and Tricia are going to send us out tonight Um Y'all are beautiful to sit in and listen to all this. It's a great thing to get to team up with you. Uh, so this is Paul Deemer and Tricia uh, McNeil. Send us out, my brother and my sister. Thank you, Shane. We're so grateful to be part of this conversation and be inspired to, to be peacemakers and, and seek Jesus. And uh, we lead some songs at our church and, and wrote this one as a congregational song. So if y'all catch on to the chorus, uh, we love y'all to sing along from home. It's called Instruments, inspired by that peace prayer of St. Francis.
feels foolish Make us fools For the sake of your crucified Son enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.